our family has this tool in our kitchen called a whirly pop. I don't know if any of you guys have one of those. The whirly pop is this incredible invention that makes popcorn over your stove. And uh, the way the whirly pop works is you put a little bit of oil in the bottom of the pot and you put the popcorn kernels in there and then you start to slowly spin it. And as the heat rises over the stove and the temperature gets to this peak point, um, suddenly the kernels start popping. And at first there's just a couple and then there's just this explosion as the whole, uh, as the entire uh, pot of kernels just goes off. And uh, I think that over the last, you know, two years-ish, a lot of our conversations um, have felt a little bit like the whirly pop. They've been whirly pop convos, where you start engaging in the conversation about what you're going through and how you're relating to it, and the, and the constant incessant conversations around the, the, the pandemic itself and the repercussions, and it's just kind of like, and then somebody says something that you don't quite agree with, and oh, I'm not sure about that. And the next thing you know, it's everything's popping. Everything's popping off. Now, um, our text for this morning is about anger. And uh, I spent a lot of time on all, all the, you know, diving into the uh, research for all the sermons. But this, image, in this sermon in particular, I, I really wrestled with because this, for me, anger, for me, is a true struggle. I think it is for all of us, and I mean, I know that it is for all of us in various ways. This is a real thorn in my side. So I'm not that excited about preaching this sermon, but I am convinced that the wisdom of God's word is going to be a blessing to all of us who are navigating a, a climate um, of anger. Our text for this morning is Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. This is God's word. The way that you explore wisdom literature, like the Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Book of Job, the way that you um, handle wisdom literature is you have to marinate on it. Like you've just got to continually revisit it. You sort of do a self-autopsy and then you read it again and you pray and you ask God to speak to you because the word of God is living and active, the book of Hebrews says. And uh, so really the Bible reads you. So when you go to God's word, it's not so much how do you as a scientist interpret it, but how does the word of God as the very wisdom and life of God do work in you, renewal, uh, conviction, healing. And so we're going to ask this verse, four questions. We could ask it 40 questions, but for this morning, we're going to ask four questions, and I can't comprehensively dive into how this would speak to your specific situation, but what I can do is give you a faithful overview of how I think the scripture wisely guides us in this, and then we're going to get to some good news, which of course we all need, which is what does the gospel have to say about this? So the four questions uh, we're going to ask the text this morning are, what picture does the script the scripture give us to describe our anger? And secondly, how does this differ from God's anger? Thirdly, what is the source of my anger? And then lastly, what do I do with my anger? So first, what is the picture uh, that the scripture gives us to describe anger? Um, you know, anger in of itself is not, is not some negative emotion that Christians are not supposed to have. Um, that's not true at all. We're, uh, we're not supposed to avoid it or suppress it. That wouldn't be healthy. The scriptures don't call us to do that. We're not supposed to just smile and, and, and t- talk through our teeth and just 
tell everybody over and over that we're too blessed to be stressed when it's not true. You know, God expresses anger. Um, we know this to be true. And the scriptures actually uh, twice, at, well, at minimum, but the two that, the, the scriptures that we're most familiar with that call us to actually be angry, um, Psalm chapter four and Ephesians chapter four both say, be angry and do not sin. So there obviously is a way to be angry that is actually in union with the way God is angry. But that's not actually, that's not what this scripture is about because it's this kind of anger exalts folly. Our God does not exalt folly. So as we consider this, um, you know, what it says about our anger um, and it being different than God's anger is that the anger of God is not like the embarrassing uncle of God's characteristics where God's anger is not like in the text where we have to like breeze over it because we're uncomfortable because it seems to paint God in a bad light. It's not like that. Um, to borrow from uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Tripp, he would say this, if, if God was not a God of anger, there would be no cross. There would be no grace. There would be no mercy. There would be no forgiveness because it was the anger of God at the destruction of, of what sin was doing to his people that moved him in radical grace and forgiveness. So if God was not a God of anger, he would be indifferent to the calamity of, of, uh, of us humans and he would just leave us to our own devices and he would leave us to our own trajectory, and, uh, which is actually a form of hate. If you just see somebody's falling off a cliff and you just stand back and say, I really don't care how this plays out, that is not love, that's a form of hate. And so what we get in the anger of God is uh, it's nothing like our anger at all. In fact, that's why we have difficult with the text about anger, because we always superimpose our version of sort of volatile, explosive, embarrassing uncle anger onto God. And it's just simply not the way that he is. In fact, we can't even understand the anger of God or the texts that talk about the wrath of God. We can't even understand that without understanding that God's anger is with tears, it, that it's that there's there's sorrow. His heart is breaking. Those of you who have had a loved one, a, fa- a, a, a family member, or a friend go down a destructive path, you know what it's like for that to bring you to tears. And it's actually a, like a godly form of anger because you see the destruction and it's hurting you to the core. So this is the anger of God. If he, in, in Exodus chapter thirty-four, when God is revealing the kind of God that he is, he says, the Lord is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Says he's slow to anger. This text here in Proverbs in front of you, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Our God is slow to anger. And uh, what does this mean? Well, I'm going to give you some Hebrew poetry because it might be helpful. Slow to anger is an English term that makes sense in our English context, and that's why the translators have faithfully translated the Hebrew that way. And it is a faithful translation. But I'm just going to give you the straight-up Hebrew because Hebrew um, is actually a poetic, imaginative language, and it invites you to picture things because in the ancient world, very few people read, very few people could write. And so the way in which they learned uh, not just the Word of God, but learned anything was like an auditory learning, and it was imaginative. And that's why the Hebrew Old Testament... Uh, you know, 75% of it-ish is like poetry, inviting to to imagine. So here's what, here's what the image is. Our English translation says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. And um, the Hebrew is, whoever has a long nose has great understanding. And whoever has hasty nostril blasts exalts folly. 
You need that image. I know this is, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just take you through this. You're like, this is being juvenile. It's not being juvenile. The Hebrew, if you imagine it, sounds like there's a difference between the person who engages in a situation and their response to this agitating situation is, that's a person of understanding. Versus, hey, here's my thought that, con- that contradicts yours. <laughs> they stop talking yet my turn oh he's being so juvenile i wish our pastor was more academic listen this is what the hebrew wants us to grab because our god describes himself as a god who he creates everything in perfection genesis 1 and 2 the sin of our first parents takes all the glory and brings damnation genesis 3 God's response in Genesis 3. Where are you? Who told you that? I'm coming to get you. This is his response in Genesis 3 to the destruction of pure beauty. And so we are now navigating a culture that sounds quite a bit like... (laughs) And all of your news feeds and all of your social media sounds like that. And we can get sucked into it. This is the difference between our anger and God's anger is that God's anger is long. The reason why the Hebrew gives the the imagery of the nostrils and the nose is you'll remember that God breathed life into creation. And so there's like this glorious connection of the one who breathes life. You know, as we are in union with him through Christ and full of the spirit, as he continues to do renewal in us, as we see our sin, hate our sin, confess our sin, learn, you know, I mean, we fail at it, but increasingly turn from our sin. Uh, the nostril blasts get shorter, are longer, because he's doing work in us. When you consider what the fruit of the Spirit looks like and the way that it's described, it doesn't say that the people of God never get angry, they're they're over anger. Um, Of course we get angry, but our our anger becomes more and more congruent with God's anger. And the fruit of the Spirit uh, looks like, Galatians 5, 22 tells us, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so as the Spirit does his work, we don't cease to be angry, but our anger manifests in this long-nosed way. It's very patient, long way. We see the glory of God's goodness throughout the entire Old Testament as this incredible patience with his people who are just uh, continually uh, failing him. And so this is why as you read through the Old Testament and you, you come across these texts that speak about the anger of God, you've got to ask yourself a question. Was he slow? Yes, he was absolutely slow. He didn't get angry in the morning and destroy nations in the afternoon. And generations went by before his judgment was enacted because he is a God who is slow to anger, steadfast in love and in mercy. And so, now we think about all this. This is what God's anger is like. We consider what it, how it describes our anger when it is the sinful anger that exalts folly. And it's the flared nostrils. It's the quick, untro- uncontrollable reflex. And some of you may be thinking, boy, I could have taken this Sunday off because my anger doesn't manifest like that at all. I'm not a shouter. I'm not throwing plates and smashing things. No, you're not. But perhaps, though, the way in which your anger manifests is like this quiet, seething 
silence that, that induces death in the people across from you. You're, like, you're not like an, an explosion, like a bomb that goes off. You're like an electromagnetic pulse that just sucks all the energy out of the, the vicinity. You know, when I struggle with my anger, it's quite a bit like that. I mean, sometimes I can raise my voice because I'm loud and big and my whole Italian side is loud and, and you know, and their voice gets big. And so I can sin that in that way. But not usually. Usually the anger is like that electromagnetic pulse that just sends a vibe through the whole room so that everybody just knows how, where I'm feeling about the issue. It's embarrassing and it's terrible. I hate it. But by God's grace, uh, my nose is getting longer. Uh, by God's grace, the nostril blasts are not quite as frequent. And may that be, uh, may God by his grace do this in all of us. The, um, the, tech, the, the Hebrew for anger is actually flared nostrils. Uh, because this is the, the image that it wants to convey. And, uh, and the word for temper is here, how your text here says, who has a hasty temper. Um, the temper is to breathe out of the nostrils. And so again, there's just this image of uh, this unrenewed, dark and unevangelized corner of our heart that's just very explosive. And the text is inviting us to say, wow, well, what's, what, not, what is the... Bible describing as my anger, and how is that different from the way that God is angry? And so should I be cautious to not just baptize my anger and say, well, I'm just, I'm just angry at the unrighteousness in the world, and I'm angry at the injustice, and, um, I, I'm ang- and, and we can list the things that God is also angry with, right? The oppression of the poor, standing on the necks of the weak, not giving a voice to the, those who are, I mean, the entire book of Amos is about this, you know? Sometimes we get so baptized in the political nuances of those conversations that people, we can use language and sort of get triggered, but we can hear all of that stuff and have a difficult uh, time sort of knowing what to do with it. But what, uh, what we get here uh, in this text is saying, well, uh, I'm not angry like God is angry. It's easy to say, well, I'm angry about the same things that God is angry about. Yes, but the difference between my God of grace and my anger, sadly, embarrassingly, is my God of grace is just as angry at that thing, but his response to it is cosmic levels of patience that I just am not exhibiting. I mean, he sees the sin, he sees yours, he sees mine, but when you wake up in the morning, I mean, what is God's posture toward you? When you wake up in the morning, you and I, we're both sinners. We're saved by grace. He calls us righteous. We're declared righteous. Our identity is not that we are sinners, but our day-to-day reality is that we are sinners. And so when you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the floor, what is God's posture toward you, Christian? Right, yeah. I'm getting help from the thank you. It's grace. His posture is not, your feet don't hit the floor and he's not... And then an hour goes by and you grab a coffee and the very first thing you do is you don't pray to him and come to him. You know, you check your newsfeed and you get angry about what's going on in the world and then you're going around and then you pray. And God is not just perpetually angry towards us. Our God is a God of perpetual forgiveness and grace towards us. Who gets angry at your sin and my sin? He gets angry at it because he sees the destructive force that it is in our life. So I think this text invites us to say, okay, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Whoever is slow, whoever is slow to um, this is, is experiencing or at least turning and resting in the renewal of God. But if I'm just as explosive as my neighbor, if I'm just as angry at the government and the media and the, and the politicians, just fill in the blank. If I'm just, if my narrative is exactly the same as everybody else, only I have an appointment on Sundays at 1030 that I got to keep, then um, there, there is a richness in God that I'm missing. Then there is a rest 
in the heart and in the mind and in the soul that I am missing. And there is a boldness that I will not have to be a minister of the gospel, the gospel, not various Christian ethics that I wish I saw more in the culture, the gospel, talking about Christ and him crucified, his goodness, his grace, why we believe that the resurrection is reasonable, how it has changed our lives, how he is the anchor of our souls, how he is the one who gives us hope for tomorrow, but like tremendous strength and empowerment for the moment and for the day. And so, what is the source of all of this anger? You know, that's the difference between how this text invites us to consider our anger versus God's anger. But what's the source of it? Well, I'm going to give you an illustration. And again, I borrowed this from uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Tripp. As I was, uh, he's a a Christian theologian. He's also a, uh, a psychologist, brilliant man, who thinks very deeply about what renewal looks like in the church. And so I have a cup of water here. And uh, we're just going to do this. Okay. Illustration's over. Question. This is rhetorical because kids love to shout things out because they have little fear of being wrong. But I know that if I ask you, you'll not oblige me. So, question. Why did the water come out of the cup? So, thank you for that, that bold person. I shook the cup. And since that bold person came right out and said I shook the cup, can I just get a raise of hand? Right? Show your hand if that's what you were thinking as well. You just didn't want to say it until they raise your hands. Okay, all right. So um, I also immediately thought that. The water came out of the cup because it shook the cup. And that is the way that our culture understands um, anger. Well, this pandemic came along and it shook me and that's why this is coming out. The government has made decisions and is continuing to make decisions that I don't agree with and it's shaking me and so this has come out. My neighbor does not share my views. My, the, the preacher doesn't share my views. The people sitting around me don't share my views and it is shaking me and it's come out. And you know what the scripture says? The water did not come out of the cup, AKA you and I, because it was shaken. The water came out because there was water there. You see, the Bible has a very low anthropology. It's lower than yours and it's lower than mine. And it says, in us is this thing called sin. And the answer is outside of us. And when there are various shakings in the world, yes, there's lots of ugly things that sort of come out of us, but they don't come out of us because of an external reason. They come out of us because of an internal reason. And the solution is not an internal solution. It is an external solution of the Savior outside us who then, by the Spirit who is now residing in us, can do renewal. Not so that we can... How how is it possible that we could possibly go through life uh, in 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 a context where we are shaken less and less? Um... Globally and historically speaking, the, the church has been shaken more than we've ever been shaken in this room, still to this day are. And I'm not saying that, you know, look over there and feel, and, and feel bad for them and so therefore feel better about your life. I don't think that's a healthy way for us to actually move towards renewal and peace and grace. But what I am saying is we need to stop and consider uh, what is the source of my anger, actually, rather than just externalizing it. And saying, well, oh, hey, good news. You know, there's an election coming up. And so perhaps your horse will win that race and uh, you'll be shaken less. <laughs> and then there will be a provincial election. This is all very comical to me, uh, by the way. I just need you to know. Because provincially, we've got conservatives and we all know that they're the savior. And then um, 
and then federally we have the liberals, and we all know that they're also the savior. And historically in Canada, we've had this two-horse race where they go back and forth, where the Christians, uh, not these ones, because you guys are sanctified and love Jesus, but Christians broadly lose their minds on the basis of which horse wins the race so that they can feel somehow that we are inching towards back to, the, to uh, a place and a time in Canadian history uh, where it is more con congruent with our Christian ethic. And so we get just as nervous and stressed as anybody else. And, and the shaking is what is the cause for our anger and our stress and our anxiety. But my friends, it was there. It is there. And we have to come into this place of rest and renewal and remind ourselves that we already have a king. We are well in the hands and the care of our king. And that has tremendous implications, which I'll get to, uh, I'll get to uh, in just a moment. Um, but the, the, the source of anger is narrative. Um, it's complex and there's a lot more than that and I'm not a psychologist, so I'm going to stay in my lane as a theologian, but I'm going to say to you um, theologically that the source of our anger is quite often narrative. Because, that, see, in the beginning in Genesis 3, our first parents believed the narrative. It was the wrong narrative and the narrative was, uh, P.S. God is holding out on you. P.S. you don't need a God. You can be God. Um, so make a decision to decide what is good and evil for yourself and be God. So they believed the wrong narrative and it led to all manner of destruction. If you've been to counseling for anger, as I have, and I, and I don't say that, uh, uh, well, whatever, it doesn't matter why I'm saying it. When you go to counseling and you talk about anger, a counselor will thoughtfully and, and wisely, this is congruent with scripture actually, um, they will ask you about the narrative, like what are you, telling yourself about what you're going and they will, they will do this. And um, so the source of our anger is quite often narrative. But what a counselor um, cannot do and will, would ethically would not do is the counselor will not give you a narrative. The, the counselor will not say, mm, okay, thank you for sharing about all the reasons why you're frustrated and angry and, and you've really walked through the meaning that you are adding to what is going on with you. Perhaps it could mean something else. They will say these helpful things. You have decided that when this occurs, it means that, but perhaps it doesn't. Perhaps it could mean other things. A counselor is very skilled and wise and thoughtful in walking you through narrative. What they won't do is say, so I've taken some notes here, and uh, I've, here's your new narrative. If you would just live into this narrative, uh, no counselor is going to do that. But the, the, the wonderful counselor has given us a gospel narrative, an eternal narrative. I mean, the glorious story arc of all time, whereby the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is a teaser trailer of the restoration of all things. I talk about this all the time, that heaven is not some spiritual, ethereal place. The plan of the Bible is not evacuation. It is restoration here. And so if that is true, living into that new narrative will really affect the way that you relate to what comes down the pipe next uh, from the government or from your neighbor or from your coworker or from a person living in your own household that doesn't share your views and it's been tense and it's been difficult. Living into the new narrative of the gospel, this is the solution for the deep-rooted anger. Because what it does is it pulls us out of the immediacy of the day and being convinced that our life is constantly hanging in the balance based on the decisions of this person or that person. And we remind ourselves that we already have a king. We remind ourselves that we are gloriously in, uh, in the hand of our king. Because when you, uh, I don't want to project on you and say that you grapple for control, but I'm a person that grapples for control. I want to have 
control. I, when I coached football, I loved being the offensive coordinator because the offensive coordinator's job is to basically be four plays ahead all the time. And you're constantly making decisions every 24 seconds, getting you four more plays ahead all the time. I mean, the offensive coordinator lives with their brain in the future, kind of, well, if this happens, I'm doing that. If that happens, I'm doing that. If the clock does that, I'm doing that. If that happens, I'm doing that. And because tragically, that's a big part of the way that I live, I'm thrown to control. You may not be that way, but you in your own special way are also thrown to control. And when you are brought into a place of helplessness, like that control is being taken away from you and something is being imposed on you, the nostril blasts are coming. But when we as the people of God can dial ourselves out of the immediacy of this particular narrative and rest in the gospel narrative, we can then relate to all of these things in a profoundly wise way. I'm not talking about bending our knees to Caesar and saying, okay, well then whatever the government says goes. What I am saying is we relate to this and say, you know what is true is that this life is not actually all that there is. And what else is true is that because I'm in the hand of God, I'm a child of God, my future is already ultimately secure in him. And so I don't need to worry about how this is all playing out. I can therefore lay my life down. And my life, if, I've, if you have short nostril blasts, your life cannot be cross-shaped. Because the, sh- the shape of the cross, the way of the cross, the way of the Christian is to lay your life down, to lay down your preference, to lay, lay down your agenda to love and care for others. And you and I will increasingly be able to do that in as much as we don't believe uh, that TikTok, the clock is ticking on my already short life and COVID has already stolen two years of my life and I'd like to get it back, thank you very much. That makes a lot of sense if you're an atheist. Like if you only think that there's 80 years and then you move into, a, you know, 80 or 90 years, then you move into a state of non-existence, that kind of anger, I think, makes a lot of sense. Because TikTok, people are making decisions I don't agree with and this thing's short and I have a problem with you, chip it. But we, this church... We can be people of, who are slow to anger. This is difficult. I don't even like this sermon, to be honest. But this is what we are called into, this kind of wisdom and renewal. And I'm going to close with this. Um, because our narrative, the gospel narrative, is that our, our life is truly in the hands of God. We, great, we receive tremendous comfort in knowing and remembering um, that as he is restoring all things, and of course that is future, this has deep and profound implications for Monday. And our God is a God of such perfect justice, perfect wisdom. He's going to wrap this thing up. You know, one of the funniest things about COVID is that everybody that you know has solved it. You know, like if they were in charge, they would have totally solved it. You would have. Like if I ask you, like you already have the plan, you're going to send me the links, you've got it all, like you, all of us have solved it. And so this is the dilemma of, of being surrounded by people who claim to have solved it when the reality is you've solved it. But our God is a God of such justice, he, of, of, of such tremendous wisdom that in the end, there is no injustice or oppression or abuse or sin in the world that is going unpunished. I mean, in the end, nobody is getting away with anything. Which is bad news for us because we are also sinners. 
And then the only way for God to destroy injustice and sin would be to destroy you and me. The cross is God's way of destroying sin and injustice without having to destroy us. And so this God of great justice, great wisdom, who in the end is going to ensure, trust me, friends, the scriptures are clear. Nobody's getting away with anything. But thankfully, this God is a God of mercy and grace because you and I are also complicit. We are complicit in causing others to anger and frustration. It's not just, it's not just everybody who's frustrating and angering us. It's how we have contributed to that. And so being this God of grace, he took all of his righteous, patient, just anger. Because he, 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 anger is not his nature. He's a God of love. But anger is a response to things incongruent with his nature. So don't think of God as one part love, one part wrath. That is not a good theology. Anger is not like, it's not like before the creation of the world, God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were like, you know, since eternity passed, love and anger. That is bad theology. He's a God of love, period, full stop. And his response to everything that is incongruent with his love is anger. And so he took all of that anger, that just anger, and he poured it on himself at the cross. That's the direction that it went. You and I deserve it. Not just the people that you and I disagree with and we're like, well, they're the crazy ones. They really deserve it. No, we all deserve it. God poured it on himself. This is the glory of the cross. He poured his judgment on himself. And for all of you who are here who trust in Jesus Christ, you will not be held guilty for your sin, though you and I deserve it. We will be filled with God's renewing spirit. And in the end, his resurrection, the resurrection of Christ means we get one. And so because that's true, church, in conclusion, may the spirit of God who indwells you continue to do his deep and rich renewal in you, in your hearts and in your minds, so that you are not quickly and easily consumed by anger. By God's grace, May he renew and revive us so that we don't go into the city like angry parrots. May we, by his grace, go into the city, not merely echoing the groanings of frustration all around us, but find rest in our souls, find rest in this gospel narrative. May our hearts and our minds be continually strengthened and refreshed in peace. And in a city that is clamoring for good news, may you and I be ministers of good news. Let's pray.